0: Turn in your copy of the Scriptures or scroll in your Bible app, if you would please, to the book of Acts. uh, The book of Acts, chapter 24. Uh, While you do that, I also want to call your attention to the sermon outline. If you'd like to follow along with a sermon outline, uh, you can do so at the Grace app. Uh, If you go to your app store, you can download that app and you'll find a sermon outline right there. There's also a link that you can go to. Uh, which uh, you can also find that sermon outline as well. It's on our website. There's a variety of digital ways that you can find that. It's on our Facebook page. So if you choose to follow along with the sermon outline, you can do that uh, through the app or through any one of the other uh, ways that we have an online presence. Acts 24 is where we spent the last, uh, the last Sunday that I preached, which was two weeks prior to today because we took a two-week break, a two-week interruption. Imagine that, an interruption in 2020 to what you had planned Who knew? Who'd have thunk? But we had a two-week interruption that we really, really could have benefited from and did benefit from when Pastor Brad gave us two very, very important messages on how the people of God, how our church responds during times of trouble and crisis. And so if you missed those messages for whatever reason, you didn't hear them, you didn't watch them, I really want to tell you, you got to hear them, you got to watch them. So take some time. Plug it into your headphones, uh, put it on from our podcast, or watch it online, whatever. Try to get those sermons into your mind and into your heart. They were excellent, excellent, excellent messages. This week we're back to Acts, and the last time we spent our time in Acts 24. And you may remember that Paul was being accused, falsely accused, by the Jewish people, uh, particularly the Jewish leaders, of doing things that were against the law, and they wanted to condemn him. And so, uh, in fact, even a bunch of people decided, 40 in fact, 40 people decided that they were not going to eat or drink until they killed Paul, until they took his life. Well, they didn't take his life, so I'd wonder if they never ate or drank and died of starvation. We don't know. But that's the vow that they took. They wanted him dead that bad. And so, Felix was, uh, the governor at that time, was the one in charge. And so we'll pick it up in Acts 24 and verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, pretty name, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about uh, righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alar- and as he did that, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and Converse with him. Think about the opportunity that Felix had. Think about sitting with the Apostle Paul and reasoning with him, according to verse 25, about righteousness and self control and the coming judgment. And so here we have somebody kind of like Judas, if you think about it, who had a tremendous opportunity, right, to sit at the feet of Jesus. We have Felix who's sitting multiple times before Paul and hearing truth. But really all he had his mind on was his own personal gain and money. Uh, not unlike Judas. And so Felix was hoping that Paul would give him money. Like this is a common thing. I don't know if he thought Paul would bribe him. But that's what he was hoping. So he's like, yeah, 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 righteousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that stuff about truth. Kind of hoping maybe, okay, we'll try next time. Maybe he'll give me money then. That's all that was on his mind. Verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, remember that word, we'll come back to it later, Felix left Paul in prison. And then we begin Acts 25, which is where we're spending our time today. And so what I want you to see is that the space that exists in your Bible app or in your Bible between Acts 24, verse 27, and Acts 25, verse 1, that little space represents two years, Two years had elapsed. That's what we see uh, in the end of Acts 24. And Paul had been in custody, minimum security, uh, for two years. Verse, uh, chapter 25, verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men... See if this sounds at all familiar. The chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking Asa... There it is again. Favor... Against Paul, that he summoned him to Jerusalem. Why? Because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So, uh, the only thing constant has changed, but here nothing has changed because even after two years, they still have the same plan. Uh, They're they're trying to ambush him on the way. If you remember the 40 men who had decided that they weren't going to eat or drink before they killed Paul, that was also going to be a sneak attack. Well, two years had passed, and now they're deciding that they want to ambush him on the way to Jerusalem. So they're asking Festus for a favor. A favor, right? Do us a favor. They're not interested in justice. They're they're interested in whatever gets Paul killed. Can you kill him? Can we kill him? Can we put him on the road so that we can kill him? Can we trip him? Can we attack him? doesn't matter. They don't care. The ends justify the means. They want Paul dead. And so they say, can we just try him in Jerusalem? Verse 4, Festus replied that Paul had been kept at Caesarea, that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, Let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem, look at this, stood around him. Okay, they stood around him bringing many and serious charges against him that they could what? Not prove. Now, they stood around him, right? That's not common. Nobody stands around the accused or stands around the judge. They're trying to intimidate. They're trying to, again, they don't want justice. They'll steer this trial in any way they can. They want Paul dead. So they stand around him, and they're launching false accusations, accusations that it says straight up, verse 7, they could not prove. What does Paul do? Does the same thing. There's nothing new under the sun. Same thing he did in Acts 24. Paul argued in his defense, verse 8, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against caesar have i committed any offence but festus wishing to do the jews a uh, there it is again right favour said to paul do you wish to go up to jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me and so you think why if festus decided that he wasn't going to send paul to jerusalem would he offer paul this option well because felix played kick the can with paul right he just sent him into custody did the Jews a favor, wanted to be thought well of, but also didn't want to do the right thing and judge the case. And so Felix kept Paul in custody. And like any governing ruler, even today, any person in government, you inherit the things that the last person did, right, wrong, good, bad, or ugly. And so now Festus is in charge. And they have the most famous prisoner that Felix ever had, which is the Apostle Paul. And so Festus decides that he's going to maybe offer the Jews a favor, by asking Paul, hey, do you want to go to Jerusalem? So if Paul said, yeah, I want to go to Jerusalem, Festus could say, great. I mean, I would do my job. But Paul wants to go to Jerusalem. That guy, right? So we send him to Jerusalem. He's looking to get out of it as well. He's not looking to be good or right or just. He's saying, yeah, we'll send him to Jerusalem. That's great. Maybe he gets killed on the way and I don't have to do the trial. All favors, all, everything is political, Right? Nothing has changed. It was the same way in the first century. And so he offers Paul, like, hey, do you want to go to Jerusalem? It's kind of nice this time of year. Maybe you want to go. Paul says in verse 10, no, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong. Look, as you yourself know very well, like, doesn't have, it's not rocket science, bro. You know that I haven't done anything wrong. They have no case. They can't prove anything. As you yourself know, verse 11, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, he's thrilled, when he had conferred with his counselor, answered, Oh, to Caesar you have appealed, so to Caesar you shall go. In other words, great, I don't have to deal with this. You can go. Hey, I would, guys, but he wants to go to Caesar. I got to send him. I'm, I'm sad too, right, okay, bye-bye, and he just sends him on his way, and so here's the thing, two years ago, there were things you were pretty worked up about, I don't know what they were, there were things you were upset about two years ago, and they didn't all get resolved, right, because they never do, but for the most part, chances are, you're not still worked up about them now, why? It's been two years. So I don't know what was weighing on you on August 9th, 2018, but it probably isn't weighing on you now or in the same way. It might be, but it probably isn't. Why? Two years have gone by. You've got other things to do. You've got bigger fish to fry, or at least you have different fish to fry. It begs the question, why are the Jews still so angry at Paul even after two years, 730 days? Why? He's been in custody. He surely hasn't been exercising his ministry as he was in the past. Right, he's not doing the same thing. He's not as public a figure. He's been in custody. Why are they so upset? Why not just move on? Why hasn't time healed this wound? So well, maybe they just really want justice. Not at all. They weren't desiring justice to be served. People who want justice to be served, or they, they care, or at least should care about due process. After all, if people claim to be so heartsick for justice, it stands to reason those same people would want to see justice meted out in a what? Just way. They'd want a course of proceedings of some sort carried out in an orderly manner in accordance with some sort of established rule or law or principles or precedent. The Jews had no interest in this. They didn't want to let justice run its course. All they cared about was that Paul died. And the ends justified the means. It could be at the hands of the Roman government or their own hand through one of several ambushes that they planned. They didn't care. They just want Paul dead. Why is this top of mind after two years? And you say, well, they really, 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 really hate Paul. That's pretty obvious from the text, right? That's not altogether untrue. But Jesus tells us there's a different reason that drives their hate their anger, and any opposition that Paul faces or that Christians like you and like me face because of our faith, which brings us to our first point. You need to remember that those who oppose you for your faith are really opposing Jesus. It's way more about him than it is about you. Way more about him than it is about you. You need to understand that in every, what I'm gonna call a horizontal relational encounter, Any horizontal relational encounter, a vertical reality is being displayed. Any horizontal relational encounter that we have on earth between two people, a vertical spiritual reality is being displayed. We see this throughout the scriptures. In fact, we see this right in the beginning of the scriptures, right in Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel bring offerings before the Lord. The Lord accepts Abel's offering. He rejects Cain's offering. Cain is angry at God. His countenance falls, right? What does he do? Kills his brother. He kills his brother because he can't kill God. I might as well take it out on him. In every horizontal relational encounter we have, a vertical reality is being displayed. Right, Cain and Abel didn't have a contest. I'm going to kill you because you beat me. You won. I don't like that. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a game. Cain is angry at God and takes it out on his brother. That's the first time we see this displayed. But it's not the only time. We see this throughout the scriptures. Last week in, in uh, Brad's message, in Matthew 6, immediately following the Lord's prayer, we see this in Matthew 6 and verse 14. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive You, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive yours. Perhaps the most sobering time of Pastor Brad's message last week was when he said that if you are an unforgiving person, if you harbor bitterness and resentment and hold a grudge against someone who has done you wrong, you have every reason to seriously doubt if you're born again. Why? Because forgiven people forgive people. In every horizontal relational encounter, a vertical reality is being displayed. If you're a child and you disobey your parents, I wish you wouldn't. And part of that is because I wish there would be peace in your home. I do. But my greater concern is that your relationship with parental authority in your life Horizontal is indicative of your relationship with an even greater authority in your life. Vertical, why? Because that horizontal relational encounter you have is indicating a vertical reality. Matthew 12 and verse 30, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And you read that, it's like, ah, it's maybe like, savior hyperbole, right? If you're not with me, you're against me. It's like, well, that's not really true. Or really? I mean, can't you just be neutral? And the answer is no. No one is neutral about Jesus. All non-Christians are opposed to Jesus, either openly or or subtly, the nicest non Christian you know whoever 's coming to mind, that coworker, that friend, that family member, super nice, fun, loving, funny, generous they 're not not like your enemy at all. you love them, you look forward to spending time with them. The most relational, loving, kindest person you know who isn 't a Christian is in opposition to Christ. Neutral is not an option on our spiritual transmission. We are always in a gear, either going forwards. Or backwards. We're not neutral. Like, whatever. I don't know, I'm kind of like, whatever about Jesus. No. Yes, that sounds like a bit much. Because that's not the case in every choice we make, right? Like, do you shop at one grocery store because you're against the others? Probably not. Maybe some of you do. That's a little weird, right? Do you go to Kroger? He's like, I'm not going to Meyer? Silent J? No, no. I don't have time for that. That just confuses me. I'm going to Kroger, bro. I'm going there. No. You choose your grocery store probably based on the Product line or the prices or the location, the proximity to where you live or where you work. Like, it's not everything's like, I'm doing this because... Now, nowadays, everything's a statement, right? So everything could be like, oh, no, I'm going to Kroger because I really do hate the other ones. And all you ladies are like, no, I go to Target for everything. But that's not the point. The point is not everything is like, I'm for this, I'm against that. Sometimes it's just a choice. But in every horizontal, not transactional, but relational encounter... A vertical reality is being displayed. Jesus wanted us to know that there's no neutral when it comes to him. There's a spiritual reality that exists in the hearts and the minds of every person in the world, which is why he says what he did. He says, if you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not gathering others for me, you're scattering others from me. No one is neutral. The nicest non-Christian you know, the most relational, kind, loving non-Christian you know, who isn't a Christian is in opposition to Jesus. So you say, so we should be oppositional to them? No, I'm just letting you know. Don't view that person as neutral. They're either for or against. John chapter 15, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world... The world would love you as its own. It's because you are not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, verse 20, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Finally, he says in verse 25, But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. No one is neutral. And so here's something for you to consider. I wonder if there's a situation in your life, a relationship that you have with someone else that you're taking unnecessarily personally. Because at first glance, it's between you and that person But in reality, it's between them and God, and you're just caught in the middle. How does this reality impact Paul in this situation? The reality that there is no neutral, everyone's either for or against. Well, here's it. There's absolutely no indication in the text in Acts 25 that he takes what is happening to him personally. It's not because he was a stand-up guy or... Because he was so resolute in his convictions or because he was just so laser-focused or a great man of character. I mean, I'm sure he's those things, but that's not why. It's because he knows the truth. He knows his accusers think this is because they hate him so much, but because they reject him so much. But Paul knows better. He knows this is like a little about Paul and a lot about Jesus. He knows that if the world hates him, it's because they hated Jesus before they ever hated Paul. Paul's getting it from all sides, right? He's getting it from people who would be considered his tribe, right? The Pharisees, he used to be one of them. And he's standing before corrupt pagan rulers who were never in his corner to begin with, never will be. But he knows it's not personal. He knows it's spiritual, which impacts how he handles himself, which brings us to our second point. You need to strive to stand for what is right in an honorable way, a way that is different from the rest of world. The world and That's what Paul does. He doesn't back down, but he stands for what is right in a way that is different. How do we know Paul understands this vertical reality, right, that the relational encounter he's having with other people indicates a vertical reality? Well, because he wrote about it. God revealed it to him and inspired him to write about it to the church in Rome. And so, if you would, go to Romans chapter 13. We know Paul knows this. We know this is on Paul's mind, Because he wrote about it elsewhere. In fact, he would have written about it before this time. Romans chapter 13. What's on Paul's mind as he stands before these pagan governors, these pagan authorities? Romans 13 verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so... Paul realizes that every human authority has been instituted by God. There's no no authority except from God. And so whatever authority any governing ruler has has been given to them by the Lord, and the Lord's going to work through them for better or for worse to execute his plan. You might recall that when Christ stood before Pilate, Pontius Pilate, in John chapter 19, Pilate goes to him, Do you not know that I have authority to release you or have you crucified? Like, I literally hold life and death, your life and your death, in my hands. And Jesus answered him, what? You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. And Pilate thinks he's crazy, but Jesus understands the reality that all the authority you have, the position you have, all of that is from my heavenly Father. No matter how a person rose to power, whether they were elected, appointed, whether they, it was a power grab, it doesn't matter. God's in control at all times. And God's the one who put that person there. And they don't have any authority that's not from God. All government leaders got there because God appointed them to be there. Governor Bashir, Barack Obama, President Trump, Kathy Zembrode, Nancy Pelosi, Matt Bevan. Romans 13 is clear: "There is no authority except from God, and those that exist or existed Governor Bashir, Barack Obama, President Trump, Kathy Zembrode, Nancy Pelosi, Nat- Matt Bevan have been instituted by God. And so here 's Paul standing in a room outnumbered by false accusers. Standing before corrupt governing authorities, and yet he's aware of realities in the room that no one can see. He's aware that his false accusers really hate God more than they hate him. And he's aware that Festus is God's man for the job. You say, What? He's a pagan! not because Festus loves Jesus. He most certainly did not. But because of what Paul wrote himself in Romans 13 and verse 2, that there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Paul knows that God's going to do what God's going to do. And he's participating in a legal process, horizontal, but he knows that that process is in God's hands from start to finish. And there's no false accusation, no governing authority, nothing that will stand in the way of what God wants to do. So what's Paul's job at that moment? His job is to act differently than another person would if they were in his shoes sans Christ. Right, If they were in his shoes and they weren't a Christian, they did not have Jesus, they didn't love Jesus, they didn't give a rip about Jesus, he says, I need to act differently than they would. How might they act? How might they react if they were imprisoned or in custody for two years? Be like, two years, I've been locked up for two years and still no justice was served. Hey, hello, they have no case. They can't prove what they're accusing me of. You know this. He even says that in Acts 25. He said, as you yourself know very well, I've done nothing wrong. They can't prove what they're saying. There's no case here. This is ridiculous. Let me go. We don't see Paul say that. Why? Because his response to them must be different than those without Christ. And so he acts honorably. Honorably. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And look at verse 12. The apostle Peter says this. 1 Peter 2 verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. What? Honorable. Why? Because it's just nice to be kind. Just be nice. I people being nice. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles so that they could be honorable. We should all just hold hands and skip through the grass. Correction, we should skip through the grass six feet apart from one another. Just be nice, right? That's just, you think that's what the Apostle Paul was saying? Like, just, just be nice, not enough nice people. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, verse 12, honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers... They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, please look at that verse and understand, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. That is a what type of reality? Horizontal, right? Why? That they may see your good deeds, horizontal, and glorify God on the day of visitation. What Peter is saying is your conduct in the face of pagans literally might be used by God in their life, and they might glorify Jesus Christ on the day of visitation when he returns. So what are you saying, Peter? Like kindness saves? I hold a door open for a lost person, all of a sudden they go, I need Jesus. No, that's not how it works. But that God uses different things in the lives of people. Chances are your salvation story is not just one thing happened. It might be, but God usually plants seeds through different people, in the course of their lives, and draws people to himself. And so here we're reminded that what we do and how we act before lost, pagan, corrupt people might be used by God for his glory, that they might glorify God on the day of visitation. Honorable. That's the Greek word, kalos. Here's what it means. This is a long definition with a lot of words, so bear with me. Beautiful. So keep your condom with the Gentiles honorable. What does this mean? Beautiful. Handsome. Excellent. Eminent. Choice. Surpassing. Precious. Useful. Suitable, commendable, admirable. It means this. Good, excellent in its nature and characteristics, and here's, if you've missed everything else, just listen to this. And therefore well adapted to its ends. Say, so what does this all mean? Christians are people who adapt. Adapt. Throughout history, people adapt. When the, the, the church can't be stopped. The gospel can't be stopped. People adapt. In closed countries, people adapt. They worship underground. When, when Bibles are burned and people are doing in an effort to get rid of the word of God, people adapt. There's different ways. The, the word of God is unstoppable. The gospel is unstoppable. Jesus is unstoppable. unstoppable and the people of God adapt. Here... We're told to be honorable in an adaptive way. We're going to change the way we act because we have a different end in mind. What's the end we have in mind, according to 1 Peter 2 and verse 12? That people might see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so 1 Peter 2 goes on in verse 13, says this. Be subject to, similar to Romans 13. Be subject to the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, And to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. Here we go. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Verse 17 says this. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. I feel like honor the emperor is redundant with honor everyone. Right? Like, isn't he caught in that word? I think Peter writes, honor everyone, and this is honor the emperor, because everybody would say, well, yeah, but surely not the emperor. Right? And so was like, no, I really meant that too. So he writes that as well. And so go back to our text in Acts 25. Here's what you need to see. Paul's consistent response to false accusations and to corrupt rulers doesn't match their tone. When standing before the pagan Roman government, he neither rebels against them, nor lets them take advantage of him. So many times we think there's just two ditches, right? Be outright rebellion, I do what I want, you can't stop me, or we just roll over and we're just a doormat. Paul simultaneously submits and appeals. He does both. He simultaneously submits to the authority that he's under and appeals. Look at Acts 25, verses eight and following. Paul argued in his defense. He said, "I'll, I'll repeat it. I'll say it very clearly. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Festus wishing to do Paul a favor. says, do you want to go to Jerusalem? Look at verse 10. Paul said, no, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I've done no wrong as you yourself know very well. Verse 11, he says, I'm not trying to escape death. If I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything of which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. I'm not against justice. If I did something wrong, I should be punished. He said, but if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Paul realizes he doesn't have just two choices, right? Put up and shut up or pitch a fit in the name of his rights. Not at all. He simultaneously submits to their authority and appeals based on his rights as a citizen, and does so in a way that is honorable and pleasing to God. Why? Because he wants to keep his conduct before the Gentiles honorable, because they might see his good deeds and glorify God. And say, something's different about this man. Something's different about this man. And the more consistent examples a lost and dying world sees, something's different about this woman. That kid is not Like every other kid, that person is different. The way that person acts is different. And the more consistent example people see of Christians, they might say, what in the heck is up with them? They don't just roll over, but they still act in a way that's honorable. What is up with them? What is different about them? What do they have that I don't have? What's driving this difference? It's really strange. And Paul only does this because he sees those spiritual realities in the room that nobody else can see. He sees the horizontal battle that's taking place right between people. But only Paul knows the vertical realities that are going on. He's he's engaging in the horizontal, but he's being motivated by the vertical truth that he knows. The spiritual realities that exist between people and between them and God. He says, I submit to them because in so doing, I submit to him. I act honorably to them because in so doing, I act honorably to him. And so think about it. It's 2020. And no matter where you live, you live in crazy town. What about you? As a Christian... Are you aware of the unseen vertical realities, the spiritual realities that are going on in our world today between people and God? Are you aware of the vertical realities that are at play that others can't see? Even others who think similarly to you but who aren't Christians. So wherever you are on the political spectrum, even other people who are in your tribe, in your group, but they're not Christians... Can you see things that they don't see, or do you just see everything they see? Because Paul was keenly aware of the realities at play. The political realities are easy to see. The corruption, the favors, the glad-handing, the mob rule, the plans, the conspiracies. Atheists can see that. But Paul was aware of spiritual realities at play in people's hearts and minds. He knew that those in authority were only there because God placed them there. And he knew that the haters really had a beef with God infinitely more than they did With them. So, what about you? Do you take it to that next step? Can you see those realities? Say, I see what's going on here. I see the corruption. I agree that it's bad. I agree that it's horrible. I think I know what's really happening here. But then you take it another step. You say, you know what else I know is happening? I know that this is infinitely more spiritual than it is anything else. That there's spiritual warfare going on here and battles that are going on between good and evil that I can't see but I know are there because I know God's word and I interpret things through a biblical lens. Are you aware of those realities? Or do you just see what everybody else sees? Because God's given you a lamp unto your feet, right, a light unto your path in his word to keep you in check, to remind you, yeah, 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 all the stuff that's going on, don't disagree, it's horrible, it's bad. Do you also understand that what's even worse or maybe even scarier or even more impactful is that there's a spiritual dimension to what's going on between people and between people and God? That helped Paul to navigate this situation without falling into one ditch of outright rebellion or another ditch of just blind obedience to ungodly leaders. Here's another reason he can do that. He actually doesn't take himself so seriously. Point number three, you need to remember that God isn't tied to one method in order to work out his plan for his glory and our good. You know that? He's not tied to any one method or one plan. Acts 25, verses 2 and following, says this. The chief priests and the principal man of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking, here it is again, as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem. Why? Because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Oh, awesome. So verse 4 says this. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there. So here's the question. Why did Festus deny them that favor? Why did he not grant them that request? Did he not grant that request because he knew there was an ambush on the road? I don't know. Did he deny them their request because he's the new guy in town and wanted to handle this well? Right, I want to be a good governor. I want to be thought of as well. Even in the first century, everything's political. Felix swept it under the rug, played kick the can, and now Festus is tripping over it, so maybe he wanted to settle it once and for all. Or maybe he just saw no real reason to move Paul to Jerusalem. Maybe he was just unconvinced by the, by the request. We don't know. Here's what we do know. What I wrote in the uh, margin of my Bible, because I write sideways sometimes, providence spared Paul. You see that? Providence spared Paul. I don't know why, why Festus chose to not send him to Jerusalem, but the bottom line is, because Festus chose not to do that, Paul was not ambushed and killed. So God providentially spared Paul. You see, as dark as this present day and age is, it's not overwhelming to God. Do you realize that? How many of you have at some point, by a show of hands, thought or said throughout the year 2020, this is overwhelming? How many of you have thought or said that? Just raise your hand. You've thought or or said that this, I'm overwhelmed. Whether you're overwhelmed by the changes, you're overwhelmed by the news events, you're overwhelmed by, I mean, it's overwhelming, right? Just overwhelming. God has never been overwhelmed. Like, those are words that have never come out of his mouth. It's a thought he's never had. He's never said, "Whoo, it's crazy down there. This is overwhelming. I, I can't know more. Words God has never said. By a show of hands, in some way, shape, or form. In some way, shape, or form. This year, you've had to have a change of plans. Raise your hand. Look, you're laughing, right? You're like, "I'm." Some of you raising two hands, right? You've had to change plans. I've had to change plans. Baseball has had to change. They're never going to finish that season, by the way. It's crazy. Anyway, God has never changed plans, He's never adjusted. There is no plan B, there is no backup plan. There is no, in light, don't worry guys, I'm God. I have another plan in case this, uh, that never happens. As dark as this present day and age is, and it is dark. It's not overwhelming to God. It's not standing in the way of his good plan. At all. I'm overwhelmed. I've had to change plans. God is not overwhelmed. And all of this is in God's sovereign plan. He's still going to win. Isaiah 14 and verse 27, for the Lord of hosts has purpose and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? Job 42 verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Furthermore, God has a plan for our lives, our world, and his kingdom that ultimately results in his glory and our good every time. Not most of the time, every time. Romans 8 and verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, maybe you see that verse and you're like, you know what I'm going to do? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a sandwich board sign, like one of those deals, hang it, and I'm going to stand on a busy road and I'm going to encourage people that all things work together for good. You'd be lying to them. Why? Because that verse, that promise is not just to the world at large. Look at it again, Romans eight twenty-eight in your outline. And we know that for who? For those who love God, all things work together for good. And so in our text today, in Acts 25, we have a bunch of people, right? We have Paul, his accusers, Festus, whoever else would be in the room. I don't know, guards, a caterer, I don't know. We have a bunch of people in the room there. And who was God working good for? One person, Paul. How do we know that? Because only he loved God, and God always wins. And since God always wins, so do his kids. Praise the Lord. God isn't tied to one method of working out his plan for his glory and our good. Now, where in your life have things not gone according to plan? And I'm smiling because it's 2020. You've been 2020, right? Don't even think 2020. I'm asking you, where in your life have things not gone according to plan? And when I say according to plan, that could mean a variety of things. It could mean like a legit actual plan, right? You, you had a plan of what you do, but circumstances arranged themselves in such a way that you couldn't carry out your plan. That doesn't mean it was an evil plan. It was just a plan, and it made sense, but the proverbial stars just didn't align. It just didn't work out. You maybe made the plan based on something God had dropped in your lap. You're like, wow, in light of this, let's do that. But for whatever reason, it didn't work out. But when I say when things didn't go according to plan, it might not be an actual plan. Maybe it's just like the normal, conventional, usual way things have worked out or the way you hoped they worked out. You thought by now it would be different. You have a child. You raise the child, you love the child, you teach the child, you correct the child when they're wrong, you show them what is right. The child grows and comes into adolescence, and it's time for the child to start doing things, not just because mom and dad say so, but because they see the wisdom behind what mom and dad have said. And maybe that's not going well. Maybe they're not making wise decisions, maybe they're foolish. Maybe their decisions are dangerous. Maybe the time they've spent under your direct influence is over and they're gone. How can this work out? Maybe they're doing well. They're really well. They're successful in life. Got a good group of friends doing well in their job. But you would trade it all in just to know that they loved Jesus. Maybe they love you. You have a great relationship with them, but they don't love him. You never thought they'd be missionaries, but you thought they'd love Jesus by now. And it's not just parents who deal with this. Maybe you thought you'd be married by now. Maybe you thought you'd be more established than you are by now. Maybe you thought you'd graduate from college and get a job by now. Maybe you thought you'd be healthier by now or stronger by now. Maybe you thought you'd be happier by now. And however you thought it would come about, it didn't. And you look around and there's just no earthly way. And God's like, I'm not tied to one method of working in people's lives. I'm not. I mean, I might agree with you. We could have a conversation you're like, Peter, tell me I'm crazy. There's no earthly way that this can work out. It's over. It's hopeless. It won't work now. It can't work now. And I agree. I look at those circumstances and I'm like, you are not pessimistic. You are realistic. Like, this is not going to work. I, I, I'd be lying if I said I could see it working out. Like, it just doesn't make sense. There's just no earthly way it comes about. And then we remember that we have a God who is in charge of all earthly ways and isn't limited by a single one of them. God is working right now. Right now. He doesn't have PTO. He's not been furloughed. Working right now. Where you think he is absent, he is in it. Where you think he is inactive, he is active. That very situation you think is spinning out of control is still 100% in his control. That politician, your bank statement, that Gut-wrenching diagnosis, the relationship that you're in that's on the blink, your furlough, that terrible news you just received, when you can't see a light at the end of the tunnel, not because you're not looking, you're looking, and you can't see a light because there is no light, legitimately is no light. That's where you say, where are you, God? I can't see you. I don't sense you. I'm all alone. And he's like, I'm holding up the tunnel. You're not alone. I'm in here. I'm right here with you. He's just not tied to any one method, even the one that we're certain would have brought him the most glory. God looks down and he just looks at you. He's like, hey, I'm all right. Like, I've got this. I'll be just fine. I'm going to get plenty of glory. I'm not nervous. I'm not sad. I'm ruling and reigning and working all things together for your good and my glory. I will win. Paul is on trial before pagans and his own people, the Jews, want him killed by the pagans or want to ambush him. There's no earthly reason this should work out. Bad, with a capital B. So one would think that Paul better get it together. He's going to be killed and his ministry will be over and his life will be cut unnecessarily short. But even though he doesn't have a friend in the room, he has a friend in heaven who's working for his good because he loves God. What about you? In what areas of your life is the phrase, quote, There's no earthly way. End quote. That phrase. In what areas of your life is that phrase, listen to me, accurate. It's dead on accurate. There's no earthly way. And where do you need to remember that God isn't limited by earthly ways? And That brings us to our fourth point. You need to remember that nothing and no one defends you, advocates for you, loves you more effectively than God. Nothing defends you, protects you more effectively than God. Your best laid plan, do plan. Just sit around. Your best laid defense, your, how you're working it out, how you understand how to pr- keep yourself protected from the evil that's at bay. But in your heart and in your mind, you need to know that no one and nothing protects you more than God, specifically more than the love of God. When God says he loves us, it's an active love. And as a, it's not just I love you, I think I love you, I love you. It's not just a passive thing. Right? I kiss Sarah on the way out to work every day and it's not like as long we sit down, we rehearse our vows. No, it's super fast. All right, I love you. Love you too. Bye. We mean it, but it's, super, it's very kind of passive. God is never that way. His love for you is active. It advocates for you. It supports you. It defends you better than anything else we see in the scriptures. And so what I want to do in closing is I'm just going to read to you from Psalm 91. And I, I, I want these words to minister to you. So would you do whatever you need to do? You can read if you want, but just do whatever you can do to as much as possible focus on the sound of God's Word from His Scriptures from Psalm chapter 91. Hear the Word of the Lord. Listen to how He protects us. He who dwells in the shelter of of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for He will deliver you. He will cover you and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a Shield and buckler, you will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. The Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Listen to this. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him. Because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is your word. Oh, God, Lord, would you remind us of the safety that we have in you, that you are actively on the defense for your people, for your glory, and may we take great hope and peace in that. Amen.